0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1. On the Creature Called Man Chapter 8. The End of the World Part 2 Nobody who reads even a few lines of Virgil can doubt that he understood what moral sanity means to mankind. Nobody can doubt his feelings when the demons were driven in flight before the household gods. But there are two particular points about him and his work, which are particularly important to the main thesis here. The first is that the whole of his patriotic epic is, in a very peculiar sense, founded upon the fall of Troy that is, upon an avowed pride in Troy, although she had fallen. In tracing to Trojans the foundation of his beloved race and republic, he began what may be called the great Trojan tradition, which runs through medieval and modern history. We have already seen the first hint of it in the pathos of Homer about Hector, but Virgil turned it not merely into a literature, but into a legend and it was a legend of the almost divine dignity that belongs to the defeated. This was one of the traditions that did truly prepare the world for the coming of Christianity, and especially of Christian chivalry. This is what did help to sustain civilization through the incessant defeats of the Dark Ages and the Barbarian Wars, out of which what we call chivalry was born. It is the moral attitude of the man with his back to the wall and it was the wall of Troy. All through medieval and modern times, this version of the virtues in the Homeric conflict can be traced in a hundred ways, cooperating with all that was akin to it in Christian sentiment. Our own countrymen, and the men of other countries, loved to claim, like Virgil, that their own nation was descended from the heroic Trojans. All sorts of people thought it the most superb sort of heraldry to claim to be descended from Hector. Nobody seems to have wanted to be descended from Achilles. The very fact that the Trojan name has become a Christian name, and has been scattered to the last limits of Christendom, to Ireland or the Gaelic highlands, while the Greek name has remained relatively rare and pedantic, is a tribute to the same truth. Indeed, it involves a curiosity of language almost in the nature of a joke. The name has been turned into a verb, and the very phrase about hectoring, in the sense of swaggering, suggests the myriads of soldiers who have taken the fallen Trojan for a model. As a matter of fact, nobody in antiquity was less given to hectoring than Hector. But even the bully pretending to be a conqueror took his title from the conquered. That is why the popularization of the Trojan origin by Virgil has a vital relation to all those elements that have made men say that Virgil was almost a Christian. It is almost as if two great tools or toys of the same timber, the divine and the human, had been in the hands of Providence, and the only thing comparable to the wooden cross of Calvary was the wooden horse of Troy. So, in some wild allegory, pious in purpose if almost profane in form, the holy child might have fought the dragon with a wooden sword and a wooden horse. The other element in Virgil which is essential to the argument is the particular nature of his relation to mythology, or what may here in a special sense be called folklore, the faiths and fancies of the populace. Everybody knows that his poetry, at its most perfect, is less concerned with the pomposity of Olympus than with the numina of natural and agricultural life. Everyone knows where Virgil looked for the causes of things. He speaks of finding them not so much in cosmic allegories of Uranus and Cronos, but rather in Pan, and the sisterhood of the nymphs, and Silvanus, the old man of the forest. He is perhaps most himself in some passages of the Eclogues, in which he has perpetuated forever the great legend of Arcadia and the Shepherds. Here again, it is easy enough to miss the point with petty criticism about all the things that happen to separate his literary convention from ours. There is nothing more artificial than the cry of artificiality as directed against the old pastoral poetry. We have entirely missed all that our fathers meant by looking at the externals of what they wrote. People have been so much amused with the mere fact that the China Shepherdess was made of China, that they have not even asked why she was made at all. They have been so content to consider the Merry Peasant as a figure in an opera, that they have not asked even how he came to go to the opera, or how he strayed onto the stage. In short. One have only to ask why there is a China shepherdess and not a China shopkeeper. Why were not mantelpieces adorned with figures of city merchants in elegant attitudes, of ironmasters wrought in iron, or gold speculators in gold? Why did the opera exhibit a merry peasant and not a merry politician? Why was there not a ballet of bankers, pirouetting upon pointed toes? Because the ancient instinct and humor of humanity have always told them, under whatever conventions, that the conventions of complex cities were less really healthy and happy than the customs of the countryside. So it is with the eternity of the eclogues. A modern poet did indeed write things called Fleet Street Eclogues, in which poets took the place of the shepherds. But nobody has yet written anything called Wall Street eclogues, in which millionaires should take the place of the poets. And the reason is that there is a real, if only a recurrent yearning, for that sort of simplicity. And there is never that sort of yearning for that sort of complexity. The key to the mystery of the merry peasant is that the peasant often is merry. Those who do not believe it are simply those who do not know anything about him, and therefore do not know which are his times for merriment. Those who do not believe in the shepherd's feast or song are merely ignorant of the shepherd's calendar. The real shepherd is, indeed, very different from the ideal shepherd, but that is no reason for forgetting the reality at the root of the ideal. It needs a truth to make a tradition. It needs a tradition to make a convention. Pastoral poetry is certainly often a convention, especially in a social decline. It was in a social decline that Watteau shepherds and shepherdesses lounged about the gardens of Versailles. It was also in a social decline that shepherds and shepherdesses continued to pipe and dance through the most faded imitations of Virgil. But that is no reason for dismissing the dying paganism without ever understanding its life. It is no reason for forgetting that the very word pagan is the same as the word peasant. We may say that this art is only artificiality, but it is not a love of the artificial. On the contrary, it is in its very nature only the failure of nature worship, or the love of the natural. For the shepherds were dying because their gods were dying. Paganism lived upon poetry that poetry already considered under the name of mythology. But everywhere, and especially in Italy, it had been a mythology and a poetry rooted in the countryside, and that rustic religion had been largely responsible for the rustic happiness. Only as the whole society grew in age and experience, there began to appear that weakness in all mythology already noted in the chapter under that name. This religion was not quite a religion. In other words, this religion was not quite a reality. It was the young world's riot with images and ideas, like a young man's riot with wine or lovemaking. It was not so much immoral as irresponsible. It had no foresight of the final test of time. Because it was creative to any extent, it was credulous to any extent. It belonged to the artistic side of man, yet even considered artistically, it had long become overloaded and entangled. The family trees sprung from the seed of Jupiter were a jungle rather than a forest. The claims of the gods and demigods seemed like things to be settled rather by a lawyer or a professional herald than by a poet. But it is needless to say that it was not only in the artistic sense that these things had grown more anarchic. There had appeared in more and more flagrant fashion that flower of evil that is really implicit in the very seed of nature worship, however natural it may seem. I have said that I do not believe that natural worship necessarily begins with this particular passion. I am not of the De Rougemont school of scientific folklore. I do not believe that mythology must begin with eroticism, but I do believe that mythology must end in it. I am quite certain that mythology did end in it. Moreover, not only did the poetry grow more immoral, but the immorality grew more indefensible. Greek vices, Oriental vices, Hints of the old horrors of the Semitic demons began to fill the fancies of decaying Rome, swarming like flies on a dung heap. The psychology of it is really human enough to anyone who will try that experiment of seeing history from the inside. There comes an hour in the afternoon when the child is tired of pretending, when he is weary of being a robber or a red Indian. It is then that he torments the cat. There comes a time in the routine of an ordered civilization when the man is tired at playing at mythology, and pretending that a tree is a maiden, or that the moon made love to a man. The effect of this staleness is the same everywhere. It is seen in all drug-taking, and dram-drinking, and every form of the tendency to increase the dose. Men seek stranger sins, or more startling obscenities as stimulants to their jaded sense. They seek after mad oriental religions for the same reason. They try to stab their nerves to life, if it were with knives of the priests of Baal. They are walking in their sleep and try to wake themselves up with nightmares. At that stage even of paganism, therefore, the peasant songs and dances sound fainter and fainter in the forest. For one thing, the peasant civilization was fading, or had already faded from the whole countryside. The empire at the end was organized more and more on that servile system which generally goes with the boast of organization. Indeed, it was almost as senile as the modern schemes for the organization of industry. It is proverbial that what would once have been a peasantry became a mere populace of the town dependent for bread and circuses, which may again suggest to some a mob dependent upon doles and cinemas. In this, as in many other respects, the modern return to heathenism has been a return not even to the heathen youth, but rather to the heathen old age. But the causes of it were spiritual in both cases and especially the spirit of paganism had departed with its familiar spirits. The heat had gone out of it with its household gods, who went along with the gods of the garden, and the field, and the forest. The old man of the forest was too old. He was already dying. It is said truly, in a sense, that Pan died because Christ was born. It is almost as true, in another sense, that men knew that Christ was born because Pan was already dead. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed To turn, turn, will be our delight till by turning, turning, we come round right.